Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. And it took me an embarrassingly long time to catch on to how great Gene Smart is. I didn't watch Designing Women when it aired in the mid-80s to early 90s. That sitcom catapulted her to fame. I just didn't get any of its southern charm until many years later when my wife pressed a few of the best episodes on me. I liked her work on Frasier, where she won an Emmy for her recurring role of Frasier's old high school girlfriend. But that, that wasn't the role that made me add Gene Smart to my list. No, it was 24 that made me a Gene Smart devotee. So it was season five. Gene Smart had joined the cast as First Lady Martha Logan, opposite the sniveling Gregory Itson as President Logan himself, who turned out to be in league with the terrorists. And over the course of a long day, Martha crumbled. So remember how every season of 24 was told in real time, with each of 24 episodes representing a single hour in a day? Well, over the course of that day, big air quotes, she drank, she spat venom at her husband, and every second of it was glorious. Why? Why did you help them? Because you killed David Palmer. I told you, I, I, I didn't realize that was going to happen. You, your people killed him to protect you. You covered it up. That's just as bad. I covered it up because I had to. Oh, and then others died to cover that up. That's right, for the good of the country. You sold nerve gas to terrorists. You're insane. You're insane! Playing Martha Logan might seem odd for Jean, because before 24, she was known for more comedic roles. But that's the thing about Jean Smart. Once you think you have her pinned down, she swerves and does something else entirely. She's an expert at confounding your expectations. So I could just list great Gene Smart roles all day long and we'd have a fun podcast. But really, all you need to know to appreciate the discussion that I had with her is that she's on FX's wildly ambitious X-Men drama Legion. She plays the head of a mysterious organization looking into mutants and their abilities. That show just started season two. We talked about both it and the other legendary roles she's played throughout her career. And just a note on this week's episode, I caught up with Jean at a hotel where she was on a press tour for the show while they were in production on season two. That was like the only time we could make it work. So you might hear some foot traffic and voices in the background. And I hope you won't let that detract from the greatness of Gene Smart. And I hope that you too will become a Gene Smart devotee. I've loved your work for uh, quite a while. You know, I, I obviously remember you from Designing Women, but you were on 24. You've been in so many great things. And I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to start with like, what was your first audition even one you didn't get. If you remember like your first like really memorable audition. I auditioned for a musical in New York and I sang and I hadn't gotten any training for my voice. I have a good voice, but not when I haven't been warming it up. Right. But I sang, oh, the way you hold your knife. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And uh, it did not go well. <laughs> yeah. Like how did you sort of build up those audition skills because I'm fascinated by like the process of auditioning and like everybody has a different ritual almost. Well, I went through a real intense acting program at the university of Washington. So there were like 12 of us that were together for three years. Oh, wow. And it was a BFA program. And so we really got amazing experiences. We got all the best directors and sets and costumes and, and they introduced, introduced us to all the different, kind of these different genres of theater. 
And so I, I left school with a, an enormous amount of confidence. Sure. And so I always looked forward to auditions. And when I read when I read a script, if I can hear the character in my head, if I can literally hear their voice, yeah. then I know that I'm going to be able to do something good with it. If I don't right away, then I know my work's cut out for me. <laughs> That's a little nerve-wracking. So you mentioned you were in college with like 12 people mm-hmm. doing this. That must have been nuts. Like you were together for three years. You must have known everything about each other. More than you ever wanted to know. I'll put this in context. I uh, graduated with a class of 16 people. And thir- 13 of us had been wow. together from day one of kindergarten <gasps> to the end of senior Where year. Where was this? This was middle of nowhere, South Dakota. So wow. we knew each other so well. And then like that was my idea of what friendship was. <laughs> like, wow. you, know, you just knew people your whole life. So tell me about like That's how. nice. But tell me about how that like prepared you for acting because it's it certainly sounds like a really you know warm and comfortable environment in some ways or maybe it wasn't this is why one of the nice things about theater is that there's not really a pecking order the way there is in film and television right you're pretty much all in the same boat no one tries to pull any rank on anybody except maybe the writer yeah (laughs) you know because the writer is the guy yeah in theater Mm -hmm. unless he's a dead writer because you really depending on each other so much. When you're out on stage, I mean, I had a friend who was always fond of saying that right before we'd walk out on stage, he'd say, okay, see you on the ice. <laughs> you know, because to yeah. him, I mean, that's what it was. It was a big slippery ice rink. And, and you had to know that if something went wrong, and sometimes things do go wrong, you can't just stop and say, uh, can I try that one again? Yeah, You just have to keep going. And, yeah. and if you trust those people you're out on stage with, that's huge this is this is something i was going to ask later but i'm going to move it now because you just you just brought it up so nicely which is i always ask people who've done a lot of stage work what was their worst night like what was the night when things just didn't go right what like what's your stage disaster there's a few well there's the one where i broke my foot on stage that wasn't fun (laughs) no i'm sure well the one that pops in my mind is i was doing a play in seattle called dance of death and there's a scene my husband and I live in this isolated place on a little island. Mm-hmm. And the only communication we have with the mainland is a telegraph key. And the whole second half of the play hinges on us getting this message. Right. Well, I had to send a message earlier in the play, and the telegraph key just came off in my hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I knew that we were not going to get that message. Right. Mm-hmm. My co-star did not know that, and all I'm just <laughs> Seeing ahead of us is a complete disaster, and I don't know how we can possibly get out of this. And I still, to this day, don't remember exactly what we said or did, (laughs) because the cue finally came, which I knew it was coming, so I'm just sitting there dying. Pretty soon the silence goes on and on, and then (laughs) we just have to start making up stuff. I swear (laughs) to God, I don't know what we said or what we did to even have the rest of the play make sense. Right. That somehow, somebody somehow got a message to us through some... It was just... It was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. You just feel yourself aging in front of the audience, you know, the gray hair sprouting and because your heart is just in your throat and you just, and you swear after that, you think, I'll never do another play. It's not worth it. Yeah. That was too horrifying. I will never, never do that again. But of course you do. In my younger days when I thought I was going to be an actor, I was playing the butler in The Sound of Music and I opened the door and came in and said my line and closed the door and the wall flat <gasps> next to it just fell right over. 
right in the middle of like people who were dancing. It didn't hit anybody, thank God. And like the, the lead of the play, thank, thank God, he stepped forward and was like, we had a little problem with the wall, but that's all fixed now. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yes, I was in a play where we had an actual fire in the fireplace and it lit the set on fire opening, oh, no. opening night. And a crew guy had to come out. It was the period piece. A crew guy had to come out with a, in T-shirt and jeans with a fire extinguisher. Yeah, I'm sure it, it added to the vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you knew from a young age that you wanted to do this. Like what, what was the impetus for you wanting to perform? Well, to be honest, I was always the family uh, ham and show off, but I never it never occurred to me to be an actor until I was a senior in high school mm-hmm. and I took drama and I just unfortunately or fortunately got got hooked and I knew that there was a really superb program at the University of Washington in Seattle where I lived and my parents had both gone to school there and my grandmother had gone to school there and so it just seemed kind of I actually wanted to go to Washington State, where my sister had gone to college, because right. she made it sound so much fun. Yeah. But thank God for my mother, because I had been recently diagnosed with diabetes. Okay. So my mother was a little bit leery of letting me go out of town to school. Too far, yeah. <laughs> and because of that, I went to the University of Washington, and that changed my future, my life. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've done had a lot of stage training, and that obviously, like when you think about something like Designing Women or your work on Frasier or some of these other multi-camera sitcoms like that translation seems obvious but something like legion maybe it feels like there's a bigger gap like how do you feel that like having that grounding in the stage has helped you be in you know a big superhero tv show (laughs) well you know casting directors and have told me they said you can spot a theater trained actor a mile away compared Mm -hmm. to actors who just came to hollywood because someone said oh you're cute you should be an actor i always think that's weird when people go oh Oh, she's very good looking. She should be an actress or he's very handsome. Like my, my friend's grandmother used to say, he's handsome, like an actor. <laughs> you know, and you think, well, who plays all the ugly parts then? You know? yeah. But the thing about working on stage is you have to act from your feet up. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you've only used your face, mm-hmm. that's not good. It's right. not, you know. I recently asked a casting director, I said, have you seen a difference with the much younger actors? If they have to do a scene, say, where they're breaking up with someone or something, sure. a really intense scene, I said, how how are they ever going to have that when they don't even have those conversations? Right. They, they meet online. They text throughout their entire relationship. Sometimes they break up in texts. Yeah. How, literally, how do you enact a scene with all its pauses and discomfort and even the way you breathe and think, and she said, Oh my God, you're right. Oh my God, this is going to start being an issue for some people. Right. Right. This is actually a thing I was thinking about because Ian McKellen and and Patrick Stewart, who are in the X-Men movies, Hmm. talked to, have talked in interviews about how like theater training helps you. Like if you have to imagine there's a thing over here, that's going to be added by a computer. Like that helps you do that. that. Have you found that? Oh, well, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but of course it makes sense because you, you're in such an inherently false world when you're on stage and you've got an audience in front of you. So that is, you're using that same part of your right. of your mind and your imagination. Absolutely. Right. Legion's a weird show. Um, you think? <laughs> I think people would, would, would I say I tell people to drop acid before they watch. <laughs> what do you, like, what do you, what do you make of it? Like, do you enjoy a show where you don't always understand what's going on? Like I, I watch it and, 
often I'm like, what is happening? You yeah, know? no, I didn't at first, <laughs> but I finally realized that I needed to just embrace that and yeah. say, don't, Gene, don't rely on your old habits. Just embrace this idea that, you know, it's a roller coaster and <laughs> don't expect to always know what's going to happen. And I mean, obviously on most series, you don't always know what's going to happen, but with this one, <laughs> it's like anything can happen. Yeah. You know? You're not entirely sure who you are. If you're in a place where you don't exactly know the answer to a question and like you ask Noah Hawley, who's the guy who created and writes and directs so much of Legion, you ask him, what's the answer to this? And he says, I, I don't know or I can't tell you, you know, because there's secrets on the show that you can't know about mm-hmm. yet. Do you fill in a ga- that gap in your head? Do you come up with an answer for yourself to be able to play it? Or Well, no, no. If you do ask Noah, I mean, he'll he'll try very much to help guide you. Mm-hmm. But he's so smart, and yeah. he knows exactly where he's going in his head. So I think sometimes he forgets that a couple of things he didn't put on the page. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and he sort of assumes that you knew them. I was like, no, I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> you know, so that happened a couple of times. But um, I just have, I just have such admiration for him. He's, he's, uh, he. I mean, he's just a he's a, a Renaissance man. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. there isn't a school of music or a genre of film, art, you know, literature that he is not uh, real familiar with. Well, he's doing everything now. Like he's, he's oh. writing like 15 books. And mm-hmm. <laughs> making and producing movies. movies and yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he's, he's something else. And you've worked with him now. I think he's from another planet. <laughs> you've worked with him now twice because you were on Fargo season two as well. Like what drew you to his work in, in the first place? I auditioned for Fargo with a speech that was so brilliantly written, it told me everything I needed to know about the character. Right. That was one of those examples, like you asked me, where I knew exactly what I wanted to do with her, and I could hear her voice in my head. It was just a wonderful feeling. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just lucky that he saw it the same way. Yeah, yeah. He casts you as authority figures a lot, which I think is interesting and you've obviously played a number of them over your career but you've also played characters who have less power you Mm -hmm. know what do you find interesting or invigorating about playing somebody who has a lot of power over other people i think it's always fun to play people who have all sorts of vulnerabilities and issues and things like that the thing i liked about floyd's character yes i played floyd (laughs) um in fargo was that she was a liberated woman before anybody even termed that. Yeah. She, she wouldn't have thought of herself that way. You know, she would it just would have been, no, I just do what needs to be done. Yeah. If something needs to be done, you do it. What, what do you, she was a very practical, hardworking person. And again, who lost her husband and had to take over the business. So right. She has that similarity with mm-hmm. Melanie. But unlike Melanie, her past was, I think, at least in my mind, you know, that she grew up with around strong men. And that she uh, was used to working hard and was attracted to her husband because he was probably much like the men she grew up with. And she was always worked hard yeah. from the time she was a little girl. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That moment in Fargo when Floyd's like just decides to take over in essence, like that's just a, a beautiful scene. And like in a lot of your roles, you play that moment of I'm making a decision now and you're going to see it in my eyes before – I say anything like I, th- I feel like you play that really well. What's the process of of playing a character who is making a choice? Do you actually sit there and like have that 
thought process yourself? With Floyd, it just felt so right all the time. I don't know why. Even more than Melanie, she played her cards so close to the vest. Yeah. She never let you in, but at the same time, you know, you kind of knew yeah. mm-hmm. the pain that she went through. And I mean, anyone who's lost children, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, I mean, you don't, it's going to change you forever. Yeah. And you're not going to let yourself get hurt easily, you know. Yeah. Talking to people who've been on Fargo, this is just a, 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 a sort of a silly question, but it gets cold when you're making that <laughs> show. How did you cope with the winter? Yeah. Well, I was, you know, people would say, oh, my God, you're such a good sport about all that. And I'd think, well, you wouldn't have said that if I'd been in season one. <laughs> apparently, they just, it was brutal, apparently, yeah. in season one. It really was only really uncomfortable sometimes early, early, early in the morning or late, late, late at night, and right. we'd be shooting outside. Mm-hmm. And I used to beg to have some kind of a hat on. My head was like a block of ice. Yeah. And I remember I'd, I'd talk to the wardrobe people, and I'd get a couple of hats to try, and the producers would think, and they'd go, oh, I don't know, I don't. I think it makes her weaker. And I'd go, oh, damn, <laughs> really? Yeah, sorry, do you mind? I don't know. You know, but the first thing I did when I got cast in Fargo was I went on eBay. Yeah. And I bought a secondhand, like, floor-length down parka. Okay. Wow. For, like, nothing. Yeah. Because I knew I wasn't going to use it again, probably. Mm -hmm. And it was great. And then I left it up there for somebody when I left. I said, give it to somebody. Somebody's going to use it. (laughs) But it was great. I I do remember I liked, like, you would be outside, obviously in the freezing cold, and you would not have a hat on. Because the women – I grew up in that area, and the women I knew, if it was, like – Below zero, they would go out and they wouldn't have head covering. Most people wouldn't because it's just like you got used to it, you know. Yeah, but you lose all your body heat through your head. Yeah, we were we were stupid. Is what I'm saying. It, because once you you think, oh, this isn't so bad until you put a hat on, and you go, oh my god, <laughs> oh, I needed that. <laughs> so what when Noah came to you about about Legion? Like, what was that conversation? What did he say? when he introduced the character of Melanie to you and said, uh, I assume that he either wanted you to try out for it or was uh, offered it to you. Yeah, he said, I want to talk to you about my new show. I said, <laughs> great. We were somewhere promoting Fargo. Mm-hmm. And I said, wonderful. And he said, she's sort of a rescuer. And I thought, cool, I like the sound of that. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get the script, like what, like what, did, what were your first thoughts when you were like, oh, this is an X-Men thing, this is a superhero thing? I had no idea. Yeah. Until right before we started shooting. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of made an ass of myself in a couple of interviews because people would say, so you're doing a superhero show? And I'd say, me? No. <laughs> they go, yeah, yeah, you're doing, aren't you doing that new FX thing? With I said, no, I think that might be one of his other shows. No, I'm not in that one. <laughs> you were on a very successful sitcom for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And a lot of actors who are in sitcoms like, immediately get typecast or worry about getting typecast you seem to have followed it up with i think you played eileen warnos yes, that was the next <laughs> job it was, the it was next literally job. the next job um how did you how, like how did you avoid typecasting i don't know why they thought of me for that part i guess he, i don't remember i think i asked the director why he cast me as a serial killer after <laughs> seeing me on designing women um they also wanted some vulnerability mm-hmm. you know they didn't want her to be just evil or bad or, you know, and I, and I think that we, I later felt bad about doing her story because she had absolutely no say in it and it made me feel kind of bad. Right. And I also didn't want to 
hurt anybody who had been hurt by her, you know, the family members of the men that she had killed. I didn't want to bring up bad memories for people, but I I felt like we dealt with the story in a really balanced way. We didn't make her absolute evil. We didn't make her that um, forgivable at the same time. But she was just one of those people who was just kind of doomed from the day she was born. Just a really pathetic pathetic character from the time she was born. Yeah. Obviously you said that that part was offered to you, but did you in the, in those years after designing women, did you like make a conscious effort to like try and find some really different varied parts or, or do you feel like you were just kind of lucky in terms of like you weren't pegged into that specific hole? I think I was offered enough things that I was able to kind of choose, which was a real luxury I realized. Right. And uh, cause I think the job I did after that, I played this very kind of innocent single school teacher, you know, in um, the South. Right. And kind of a romantic comedy that was really, really one of my favorite things. Sure, you know? sure. It's so funny when you go from show to show, especially when I was younger. The crew, especially if they don't know you, it's a new crew, they, they will treat you kind of the way your character is. <laughs> so when I did Eileen Warnos, they would think nothing of telling me the most off-color jokes at times when I and I'd kind of laugh and I think he shouldn't have told me that joke. He doesn't know me well enough to tell me that joke. And then when I was doing, it was called just my imagination. I played this southern kind of what her mother called a spinster school teacher. Right. The crew tr- treated me like gold. You know, mm-hmm. and every morning I was playing a school teacher, and every morning I'd show up at the set and they'd go, Good morning, Miss Thompson. <laughs> you know, the whole crew and stuff. And they just treated me like, you know, with kid gloves. It was so cute. And I thought, yeah, you should have been on that last movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but how's the crew treat you on Legion? Like how, oh, how lovely, they, yeah. lovely, lovely. We miss some of our crew people from last year because we have a new crew in LA who are fabulous. But we've come we've gotten very close to our crew last year, especially Rachel and I and some of the producers and everything, because it was our crew from Fargo. Mm, okay, yeah. And so that was a very nice comfort level to have last right, year. Right, right. You have traveled a lot. Like like season one of Legion was Vancouver. Season two is LA. You were in Calgary for Fargo. You Obviously, any actor travels all over. Do you like that part of the job? Is that a thing you enjoy? or? Mm, it's not my favorite. I mean, I like to travel, but only because I have two kids at mm-hmm. home. And that was hard on my little girl, especially when I, last year. I don't know why it seemed harder than when I did Fargo. But, um, because I had never, you know, because I'd been very lucky to do a lot of work in L.A. So when that started happening, I was like, oh, dear. But, um, no, I, uh, when they switched this show to L.A., I couldn't believe it. I'm still pinching myself. Yeah. One of the things I've noted about you is that you and your uh, husband are both actors. Mm-hmm. You've both been together a long time. Um, and that is, <laughs> that's tough sometimes when you have two artists of any stripe, like in a marriage together. How have, like, what, like, what are your tips as somebody who writes and my wife also writes? Well, it can, it can be, it can be difficult because one of you is always going to be busier than, than the other. <sighs> But I don't think anybody except another actor and maybe writers yeah. totally, really get what actors go through. Right. Only right. another actor can understand that. And also, unlike any other profession that I can think of, 
two actors that are married, a man and a woman, can't compete for the same part. Right. This is true. So we'll never be up for the same job. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. I hope that happens. Now, you and your wife, I'm sorry, that may not be so true. So. <laughs> this is true. This is true. When you were in like the middle of, of Designing Women, like that was a show that started out like it was almost canceled, right? Like that sounds like it was well, right. Well, that's what they told us. <laughs> I'm not sure that was true. I think they were trying to get publicity. But. What's, uh, what, what drew you to that part? And then like, tell me about the experience of like being on that show, which was famously uh, this, this show that started out very small and then grew into this thing that was very big and, you know, rumors and everything that sort of swirled around it because of that. Well, when I was asked to do it, and again, it was funny because Linda Bloodworth Thompson, who wrote the show, <laughs> had, she and her husband had, for a while, uh, written and produced a show called Lime Street with Robert Wagner. Okay. And I did a guest spot there in Amsterdam. Right. I got to go to Amsterdam, and Annie Potts, who I'd never met before, played. we played sisters. Mm-hmm. We were like bank robbers or something. <laughs> and it was just a blast. And because of that experience, Linda cast us in Designing Women, and she'd already worked with Dixie and Delta on Mm -hmm. another show called Filthy Rich. And so she just went to the network and said, I've got these four women. I want to write a show for them. And they said, okay. Right. So that's how that happened. And I loved my character. Yeah. You know, and I definitely didn't get typecast. I would love to play a character like that again. She was so (laughs) sweet and gullible and well-meaning and, you know, the good good Baptist girl. But I I was terrified to, to commit to a series. Yeah. I had done a few series before, very, very short-lived series. But I just had the feeling that this one was going to go longer. Mm-hmm. And I remember crying and crying and thinking, what have I done? I've just sold my soul to the company store. Yeah. But my agent said, no, 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 this is good. This is good. You should do this. And, of course, ultimately I ended up loving it. But I did leave as soon as my contract was up. I did leave a couple of years before it ended. Not because I didn't enjoy it, but because I felt like – I needed to remind myself again that I could do other things. Right. You know? Right. You mentioned that you did uh, leave the show when your contract was up. Like, mm-hmm. was that a difficult decision for you? Was that like, or, or did, did you have a moment when you were like, am I, am I making the right call here? No. In fact, I knew that I was ready to do other things. And also because that wasn't just 10 episodes, that was 22. Yeah, for sure. But also, too, I could tell I was getting used to having money for the first time in my <laughs> life. And I thought, oh, no. You're an actor. You can't get used. No, 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 no. You came from the theater. You cannot get used to having money. And I really did. I mean, that sounds makes me sound, I don't know, like a Pollyanna or something. But I really did feel that way. I thought, no, I can't. Yeah. I can't get used to that. It's, it's too comfortable. It is, like I said before, you know, actors become actors because they don't want to do the same thing all the time. And here I was in this incredibly, incredibly cushy nine to five, less than nine to five yeah. job. With yeah. really good money, and I'm thinking, no, I gotta, I can't keep doing that. Do you think financial security changes actors too much? Oh, I think it can absolutely, because then you know you your lifestyle changes just enough that now you have to support that lifestyle. You think, oh, should I have bought that house? Yeah, maybe I should have bought a cheaper house because now I have to take that series. My my agent's pushing because a couple of years ago I hadn't been working for well, about a year, I guess it was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't, there wasn't anything that I really wanted to do, but I did need to work. And I did a, I did a pilot and I really was unhappy, mm. really, really happy. I thought, why did I do this? Why did I do this? 
and then they had me under contract without doing the show for a year and a half. Oh, wow. It was really bad. Mm. And uh, finally, they revamped the show and got it going, and they said, okay, well, now we're going to go into production. But I had a choice. I could make a choice, and I thought, okay, my kids can either have a mother who is unhappy <laughs> or they or we can maybe move to a smaller house <laughs> within 48 hours of making that decision and saying yeah. i can't do this i got the call that noah wanted to meet me to audition for fargo oh wow wow it sounds to me like you do look for those roles that you think might give you fulfillment or happiness or something yeah. what what are you looking for in a role at this point in your career when you've done a lot of different things already I would love to go back to New York and do another really great play, <laughs> or I would love to be in a really great, really great ensemble film, maybe, yeah. a, maybe a period piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the great stage role you've never gotten to play that you would love to? I would I've done one Noel Coward play. I would love to do you know, Private Lives or something like that. What do you look for in like an actor you work with? Like, what are you, how do you know that you're going to like mesh with that person is it is it like an instinctual thing or is it something you can build over time i just want people to be nice <laughs> you know if somebody's nice that goes a long, long way with me you know i mean i tell people now when i do tv shows and things, yeah i'll say on the, on the first day when everybody's together i say okay i have two requirements yeah of my castmates and i'm deadly serious about both of them the first one is you have to be nice to the crew. Mm -hmm. And the second one is you have to tell me if I have bad breath. <laughs> and I said, I'm deadly serious about both. <laughs> that, there, I'm done. That's my speech. Have, have people told you that in the past? That I have bad breath? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we're we're kind of, we're in this moment right now where we're talking about women in Hollywood and like how that hasn't always been the most equitable workplace for them to mm -hmm. put it in extremely vague terms yeah you've you know been working for a long for a while now and i'm wondering like how has the industry changed for women acting since you started and how are things still how do they still have a ways to go i, I think things have changed in the sense that there's just simply more work yeah for mm -hmm. actors and so there's automatically more work for women although i was just thinking i was just talking to somebody and it had never occurred to me before mm -hmm. is that it used to be that doing stories that were based on an actual event mm -hmm. or you know based on a true story was sort of considered you know you'd sort of look down your nose at it it was like some silly movie of the week or something right. that were all, you know based on a true story now the movie the studios and the television studios can't get enough. They have scores of people <laughs> scouring, you know, yeah. looking for stories based on true uh, events. Right. Although the one that kills me is when they say based on an actual event. <laughs> You're thinking, first of all, that sounds so loose. Yeah. And secondly, name one thing that has ever been written that wasn't based on an actual event. <laughs> Seriously. Even Legion, I think, yeah. must have been. <laughs> well, maybe not. Okay, our show's the only one in history. Ever. But, you know, seriously. Yeah. But now, and so because of that, because you're doing stories about real people and real events, yeah. 
there are going to be more parts for women because you're thinking, well, if it's based on an actual person and because women have always been kind of underrepresented in stories because mm-hmm. it used to be that it was only men who were out in the world doing things. Right. You know what I mean? Women weren't out in public. They were at home. They, they weren't out there fighting wars or writing books or doing anything or being doctors. or So everything was written about men. Women right. were very, very secondary. Unfortunately, that hung on for so long, people just kind of accepted it. So even when the world started to change and women were out in the world doing everything that men were doing, that wasn't reflected in in plays and television Mm -hmm. and movies. And now it's finally starting to reflect the real world. Have you had a point in your career when you felt like you struggled to find parts you wanted to play? I think just now that I'm not, you know... 35, mm. uh, it's a lot harder. Yeah. It's a lot harder. Simply because you, know, you go to a movie, how many people my age are there? There's Meryl, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe somebody's really cute secretary. Yeah. Um, you know, or there's, you know, Helen Mirren, and that's it. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, not, it's not like there's going to be four or five parts in the movie of women of my age, unless mm-hmm. that's the plot of the movie. Right. Whereas you go to most movies, there's going to be at least... A half a dozen men my age, at least, yeah, who playing nice supporting roles, and you know, designing women was at a point when we had like Murphy Brown and Roseanne, and like all these shows led by really, really like smart, interesting women, uh, both the actresses and then the characters they played, and it felt like maybe that went away for a while, and I'm wondering if it felt like that to you as someone who was trying to get parts. For some reason, it it did. In fact, I remember when designing women. Ended. It was right around the time Murphy Brown ended and something else ended. It was like sort of like clean sweep. Yeah. No more Monday night, women's night. And every show after that was anchored by a guy. Oh, wow. And some network executives have sent around, well, they don't actually send around a memo because that could incriminate them, but they let it be known yeah. that no show on our network will be anchored by a woman over 40. Oh, hmm. Yeah. Or this talk show will never have a female guest on who is over 35, with a couple exceptions, like Meryl. Or, yeah. You know. mm-hmm. And you can see that when you watch talk shows. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I sometimes feel like uh, we don't talk a lot about Hollywood ageism, if you will. Do you, do you feel like that? Obviously, you've had a very successful career. You continue to get great work. But do you feel like that's the case, that there is this sort of unspoken line, especially for women over a certain age? Well, true. It is true because for whatever reason, the things that we find attractive in men come with age and the things we find attractive in women come with youth. Mm. So that, of course, is going to be reflected in our entertainment. This was a few years ago, but they said the average age difference, literally, between a male character and a female character in in a marriage, Mm -hmm. in a movie, or a TV show was about 20 years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And in real life, the average age difference between a, a husband and a wife is two years. Yeah, yeah. Also, too, I'm sorry, if the husband is funny in a movie, the wife cannot have any sense of humor whatsoever. Hmm. Yeah. I've seen that so many times and I don't know why. Because in real life, I don't think that's true. I think funny people get together. Yeah. I remember uh, when the movie, uh, the movie Neighbors, I don't know if you saw that one, when that came I out. I remember it, but no, I don't think I saw uh, it. Everybody was like, wow, they let Rose Byrne, who played the wife in that movie, let her be funny. And everybody was like, this is this phenomenally like 
feminist thing. And I was like, that's like like women are funny in real life. I don't know what. I know. See, that's the thing is over a certain age, they think, well, if you're not sexually attractive, what possible reason would we have to look at you or yeah. be interested in what you have to say or do unless you're hysterically funny or, you know, you're playing Mother Teresa or something. It's it sort of like, well, what? I'm not quite sure what to do with you. Yeah. It's like, well, women can be funny and everything that they were when they were, you know, 30. Yeah. Mm. You uh, obviously designing women, but you were on many episodes of Frasier. You've been in some of the other multi-camera sitcoms. Do you miss having that audience to step out in front of, even on a TV set? No, that part I don't miss. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I, I did a guest spot on something a few years ago, and I just, the audience itself didn't freak me out. But I mean, that, that chaotic, frenzied thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Suddenly it was so unfamiliar. I thought, oh, I haven't missed that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they have the warm-up guy, mm-hmm. and he just sometimes just works the audience up into a, a frenzy. Yeah. And to the point where the show you're doing is kind of a disappointment to yeah. the audience because they're having so much more fun <laughs> in, among themselves. Yeah. And then when you come back, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> This is weird. I mean, the first time I went through that, I had just come from New York, and I didn't know anything about it. And we were doing the sitcom, and someone said, "Okay, who's who's doing the warm up?" And I thought they meant that we were going to all get together and do, you know, yeah. tai chi or a <laughs> vocal warm up or something. And they said, "No, no, no. There's a the stand up guy." I said, "What?" Hmm. He said, "There's the stand up guy who warms up the audience." I said, "Why?" Well, you know, <laughs> just to get them kind of in the mood for laughing. I said. I mean, what? Well, that, what? That's crazy. And then after the comedian was done, they'd say, right. everybody line up for intros. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, you know, you line up and they, they introduce you to the audience. You know, yeah. and you go, I said, before the show? <laughs> like a basketball team? What? <laughs> that's, that's insane. I thought it was like, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> if there's one thing Troilus and Cressida is missing, it's a warm-up guy who like comes <laughs> exactly. out and gets everybody ready to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and before we move into the end, I have to ask you about 24, because that was, that was I'm uh, sure, just a crazy show to be on, like in a fun way. Like yes. they are always coming up with things, and you got to play such a great character. So what are your memories of that experience? That was a highlight. First of all, working with Gregory Itzen again, who I think is just beyond brilliant. Mm-hmm who played the president, he and I had done a play together years before, and right. I just had a ball. And so this was umpteen years later, so it was really nice to be back working with him again. And check, we would we would do little, you know, Broadway show tunes together between scenes on 24 and things, But because he's a real song and, song and dance man. Most people don't know that. I should have worked that into 24. should have been some singing. <laughs> I know, I know. That's what he said. No, that was a, that was a highlight. It was, was kind of like jumping on a moving train, though, because yeah. the show was already a huge hit, and... Not like Legion, but I mean, this weird thing of having to realize that your entire season was one day. Yeah. And you'd think, you know, you, you had a horrible fight with this character. And then, you know, you a couple months later, you're shooting another scene with them. And you're thinking, wait a minute, that wasn't two months ago. That was two hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it would really affect, you'd have to keep reminding yourself. And you'd go to the script supervisor and say, now, when did that happen? You know, that you, was crazy. How did you keep all that straight? It was hard. Yeah. It was hard. It was really fun. But I mean, I, I had a blast on that show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
What's the role you've played either in a movie or like in a TV show that just didn't go like that you wish had gotten more attention that you felt like sad that that character kind of got lost? Oh, I have two of those. Mm. One of them was called Style and Substance. It Mm. was written by Peter Tolan, who's one of the smartest, funniest men ever. Right. And it was a takeoff on Martha Stewart. Oh, and I don't think Martha was amused. <laughs> and I think that she was going to sue us. And I think that's kind of put the kibosh on the show, <laughs> which was unfortunate. Because, and we tried to go out of our way to say that it wasn't her that right. I'm that I'm like a wannabe Martha Stewart character. Yeah. But my mm-hmm. character was incredibly neurotic, and she had a, you know, a, a lifestyle show yeah. and all this kind of stuff. It was so much fun. The character was just a blast because yeah. she was just crazy. <laughs> Seemingly all together, perfectly together, you know, but kind of neurotic beyond description. And the only other one was I did with one with Mary McDonald called um, High Society. I I, I liked that. Which was kind of an American ab fab. Yeah. That killed me when they didn't pick that up. But we were a little bit much back in the day. These days, they'd have just loved it. The the (laughs) network, I mean. But the network is a little bit leery. Yeah. Of it, they said, "Well, could you make it more like Sybil?" We said, "Did you read the script?" (laughs) My character's a romance novelist who is stinking rich and who lusts after Mary's seventeen-year-old son and takes drugs. (laughs) You know, it's like I don't don't think we can make it like Sybil. (laughs) I'm going to start including the note. Could you make it more like Sybil? Every time I give people (laughs) something. We end, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I didn't mean Sybil, the, the Sally Fields movie. The, no, yeah. That, <laughs> Which was brilliant. Yeah. We end every episode asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to do that with you now. First one is, who is the actor you've learned the most from that you've never met? They can be dead or alive. Doesn't oh. matter. Oh, I don't know. Anthony Hopkins. I've always been madly in love with him. Yeah. What, what do you like about his work? I just... From the minute, first time I ever saw him, which was, I think, when I was in high school, I saw him in a, in a miniseries. And I just was fascinated with him, mm. just fascinated with him. And then on years and years and years later, I saw him in London in M. Butterfly. Oh, okay. And again, he was staggeringly brilliant. And I remember the next day I was walking down a side street in London. There wasn't another person around. And I see this man walking towards me, and I realize it's Anthony Hopkins. And I just start to... <laughs> quiver and I'm thinking oh god oh god should I say something to him should I look at him should I look away should I pretend oh god I feel like such a dork and 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 then he kind of got close to me and he could see that I'd kind of clocked him and uh-huh. he smiled and I smiled and he just walked past and I'm like oh god oh god oh god and I didn't say a word to him. <laughs> uh, what's the last like book you've read or movie you've seen like the last pop culture thing you've done and what did you think of it I'm not into pop culture much. I'm kind of boring. I love going to, you know, garage sales. And, <laughs> What's the know? last garage sale you went to? And what I'm, did reading, you I'm reading a book of short stories now called The Love of a Good Woman. Oh, okay. Which are wonderful. Yeah. What's your favorite movie ever made and why? Witness with uh, Kelly McGillis and Harrison Ford. Yeah. To me, it still is nearly perfect right. in every way. Yeah. Everything about it was executed so brilliantly, and it was an incredible story, and it was so beautifully done and so beautifully shot yeah. and acted and directed. And, and, and I always use it also, too, as an example of maybe the only time I've seen a nude scene where you say, that was so necessary and that was so right. right. It was so beautiful where she's standing there and she's 
giving herself a sponge bath, and mm-hmm. she has on this long skirt, and she's naked from the waist up, and she's giving herself a sponge bath. And he walks by the doorway, and he stops, and he's just sort of frozen. And she sees him, and she freezes. Yeah. And then she just turns towards him and puts her arms down and just stands there. And the look on his face, oh, my God. It was like he was in actual pain. Yeah. They were so in love and, and had never, didn't acknowledge anything. And then he kept walking out of the doorway. Huh. And she looked like a Vermeer painting. Yeah. I mean, it was just exquisite and sexy beyond anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Gene, very much for joining us. And uh, you can watch Legion on FX. I Think You're Interesting is a secret school designed to train the greatest podcast minds around, headed up by your executive producer and host, Todd Vanderwerf, in case you hadn't guessed. That's me. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week's episode was recorded at the Langham Hotel in Pasadena. Thanks to our audio engineering crew from P3 Post. And our recording engineer, as always, was Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever fine podcasts are sold. It really helps us get the word out about the show. You can email me at Todd at Vox.com. You can email the whole show at ITYI.podcast at Vox.com. And you can tweet at me at TVOTI, that's Tavoti, on Twitter. We're going to be back next week with a special episode, a tribute to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, one of the greatest films ever made. We're going to have some discussion about the film's place in history with Vox's film critic Alyssa Wilkinson, and then we're going to talk with author Michael Benson, who has written the definitive book about the making of that movie, about how that movie came to be. It's, I think you're going to love it. I think, I think you're going to have a great time. But until then, remember, never try and put one over on a sugar baker woman. <laughs>